Welcome to the Hunt League Podcast, where we share hunting stories from the field that help pave the way for others to follow. 27 years of emotions hit me, and man, it was just like, I couldn't even speak. This is your host, Jared Newman. Let's get started. All right, welcome to the Hunt League Podcast. Today, we have Tom Deesing from Mile High Note Game Calls. Tom, you're a Colorado resident, an avid elk hunter. We're going to dive into a, a lot of who you are, your resume, hunting tactics, and uh, how people can connect with Mile High Note Game Calls. But to get us started, uh, go ahead and tell us who you are as a hunter. Sure, Jared. It's great being on the show, by the way. Thanks for having me. Let's see. It all started for me probably back in 1986 or so. And, uh, you know, I, just like a lot of people now that I work with, you know, there, I was just learning how to call elk back then. And, you know, I went to a Wayne Carlton seminar, uh, in birth in Colorado, I think four or five people showed up. So I got a master of elk calling, uh, a, a class with him one-on-one right off the bat. And, you know, he really, kind of helped me get on the right, right track. And, you know, uh, right away, I realized I kind of had a knack for elk calling. So I, uh, that is once I got the reed turned around in my mouth, the right direction, I think the first two weeks I had it backwards in my mouth and never could make a sound, but then I finally figured it out. (laughs) I think I started that way too. Cause it seems like that C shape. It's like, well, doesn't that go up against your teeth and not the way around. (laughs) But I got that all worked out and then everything started coming together. And man, I remember like it was yesterday, I was in the woods at the first, uh, I, it was like mid August, you know, and I just went out and I said, well, I, I want to try this out a little bit before I start doing it in the woods, you know, that I had no elk hunting experience at all. And we just went up into this one area. I went up on the side of the mountain, let out a bugle and all of a sudden I heard all this hose thundering and six cows ran right past me at 15 yards, you know, just haul and butt and I got so excited my hunting partner was like 150 yards away and we had planned on calling back and forth and man I took off running towards him but I was like it works it works <laughs> and I was all excited and pumped up you know and from there man oh. I killed an elk that first year called one in and it's just been uh passion now for 30 some years, I guess. So. No, I mean, here's the beauty of that. What's, you know, it's like you're, you're talking about 1986. You're really on the front edge of like elk calling, elk calling technology. I mean, that's, that's amazing that you have that kind of history and that you saw that kind of immediate success. Yeah. This is pre YouTube. This is pre where there's videos or anything. Like you had to seek this out. Don't even ask me, like, there's no internet where you're in 1986 (laughs) connecting. It's like, how did you even find Wayne Carlton? There's this guy that's just calling in the woods and then a group of four hunters find him. I'm like, I mean, you are at the cutting edge of elk calling and uh, that's pretty fun. Now, just a a history lesson, a history question, because I have heard people talk about this and I, I know I'm already jumping the gun and screwing up the order of this, but (laughs) <laughs> you make a you make one bugle back in back in the mid 80s and all of a sudden you have this kind of reaction over time you know i've heard well now everybody's in the woods calling and bugling and and you know elk have, have been educated and they they don't want to participate have you seen a major difference in the way that elk respond and react with calling over the last 30 plus years yeah, I, I think I have, you know, I, I think that back in the 80s, you know, I wish I was as good a caller as I am today back then, because man, I would have cleaned up, you know, but, 
but still, you know, huge differences. You know, I, I think they bugled more and, and they did come in less weary, you know, and, sure. and, and, and it's always been challenging, believe me, you know, and you know that, I mean, it's, it's a challenging hunt regardless, but I've been living and dying by out calling my entire life. And, um, you know, I hunt mostly over the counter units and, uh, I, I, you know, if you ever went hunting with me on the, you know, by the end of the first day you would, and you had a buddy with you, you'd be like whispering over to your buddy. Holy, this guy calls way too much, <laughs> you know, but I do, I live and die by it. Even when they're not calling, I'm calling, you know, and yeah. it's always worked for me. Now, do they always come in screaming and snorting and, you know, no, a lot of times they'll come in quiet or that, you know, they'll, they'll just bugle a couple of times and sneak in and, you know, and that's kind of the differences that I've seen over the years is maybe they aren't as, you know, as aggressive and stuff as as they they used to be but if you hit it at the right time you can still find that i mean it, it's out there okay so we're talking starting in 1986 we're in 2022 now so you're not quite to 40 years um but you're you're coming up on it now you said you've hunted primarily over the counter units which i think a lot of people you know don't think much. It's like, well, I, you know, an over-the-counter unit is just going to be crowded. It's going to be full of people. It's going to be really hard. There's a lot of pressure. So I'm assuming if you've primarily hunted over-the-counter and you've been doing this since 1986, uh, I mean, you probably have some years where you haven't been able to fill a tag, have been able to, but like, you know, I, I would say, man, if you're following the odds of the everyday average bow hunter, muzzleloader guy, you know, you're, you're sitting in the, you know, muzzleloader jumps up to a higher percentage, but you know, archery's in that 10 to 12% muzzleloader. You might be in the 18 to 25%. Just doing the math, almost 40 years, you have six to 10 elk under your belt or give, give, (laughs) give us your hunting resume. Yeah. So we've done really well over the years. I've, I've myself have killed around 35 elk in that time frame, And that's just hunting Colorado. I don't, I haven't actually hunted a lot of elk outside of Colorado. So, you know, some years I didn't kill an elk. Some years I killed two elk, you know, depending on if I had an A and B tag. And yep. um, I've had a couple of good years where I've killed a couple elk, you know, and, but yeah, during that time, uh, I've been pretty successful. And I mean, that's unbelievable. And and we're talking killing elk under 40 yards. Cause you know, I've never, never said that I was a great shot with a bow, you know, I'm, I'm, a good shot with a bow, but even with today's equipment, I don't typically shoot over 40 yards. So you're talking about getting elk in between, you know, most of the elk I've killed have been at that 20 to 30 yard range. So, yeah, I could only dream of a hunting resume like that, Tom. I, I didn't see an elk for my first three seasons, or I, it was my third season where I saw my first elk. It was my fifth season before I released my first arrow. And so yeah. I mean, it's I, like to have gotten 35 elk uh, in under 40 years, mostly over the counter, hunting all in one state in Colorado. Uh, that's an, an incredible resume right there. Is elk the only thing you hunt? What what else do you hunt? No, I'm I'm an avid outdoorsman. I love fishing and hunting, and uh, I love fly fishing. So I've really gotten into that. And um, I also hunt everything that pretty much walks the land. That you know, I've been fortunate enough to do some traveling. I've been to Canada two or three times on uh, bear hunts. I've been to Canada 
once on a moose hunt. I've been in New Zealand on a red stag hunt. So I've been, I've been around quite a bit. I've hunted Wyoming a lot for deer and antelope. And so I've pretty much killed most North American game with the exception of mountain lion and uh, the elusive moose is still Oh, really? I'm sorry to hear that. I, I thought when you were saying you went and hunted Canada, I was like, I, that was a, that was a shoe and you got that one, but yeah, I came home oh. empty handed on that hunt, but it was quite an experience. I had some really cool experiences up there face to face with some wolves and tracked some moose had, had a huge moose come in, but we were bow hunting. So yeah, you know, that gotta goes. be within 40 out. So if only moose were a little bit bigger, I think you'd probably yeah. <laughs> No. But yeah, and then uh, the big one was last year. I uh, finally pulled the bighorn sheep tag after I think it was 27 years of putting in. Oh my gosh! And, uh, and I drew that tag, so that was the that was the big guy, and and I ended up killing a smoker ram. 182 and that's a big boy okay we're gonna dive into that story later i've got that yeah. I'm, I'm making a note because i i, I want to hear that story now if i had to absolutely rip your heart out and say tom you're not allowed to hunt elk the rest of your life <laughs> what is your next species like if, if you have a, the uh, next passion what are we talking about or is it just like oh my gosh you just you ripped my heart out i i can't even get up off the floor <laughs> It would be tough to recover from that one. I I will tell you that. Um, <laughs> I hate to even think about that, but it would probably be, you know, it would probably be deer. I, I really like hunting antelope too. Um, but again, you know, that's another one of those Colorado tags that, you know, depending on where you want to hunt, you might have to only hunt them four or five, you know, every four or five years or so, but I'd want to hunt something that I could hunt every year, you know, so yep. I could get good at it. And deer is tough with that. I've got 21 deer points for Colorado right now. And Oh my uh, goodness. So you're about to have son, the hunt of a lifetime on a deer. Yeah. My son pulled the tag this year with 20 points. So I'm going to see how he makes out. Then I'm going to probably <laughs> pull it next. Year, see so. if it's worth it. But there's a couple of things I haven't uh, killed yet that are still on my bucket list. Like I'd like to go after some caribou. Yep. But yeah, I love hunting bears too. You know, I've killed six or seven bears um, and I am passionate about bears. My drawback about bears though is I killed my Boone and Crockett bear. I got a 21 and 6 16th bear uh, in Colorado actually. No, what, I was going to say, was that in Canada? Yeah, that, and that was in Colorado and it was uh, over an elk gut pile that I had harvested took me three days to get that bear but i finally did get it and it was a beautiful cinnamon color and um but you can only do so much with bears i love hunting them and they the food they're not bad eating you know i like to eat them but i just feel like you got to honor that animal somehow and just doing a caper you know just doing a hide i don't know i i, I just don't feel like i need to i need to, another trophy bear you know, so sure. it's hard sure. for me to keep going after bears, but I sure have fun hunting them though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Tom, you know, a big part of having you on today, you are the founder, the owner of Mile High Note Game Calls. We're going to get into that. But before we dive into what Mile High Note Game Calls is, uh, people around the world, they know you as an elk caller like you you've won several different championships uh with elk calling you you've been a colorado state champion multiple times you've you've won in other states uh you've competed on the world stages uh multiple times so i think when people hear your name 
it's synonymous with elk calling. And, you know, you just gave us a little bit of your history of getting started learning from, I mean, an absolute legend with Wayne Carlton uh, in the 80s. But give us a little bit of your elk calling resume so that people understand who you are as an elk caller, because I, th- I think that's going to be really important as we kind of move into this episode. Sure. So, um, like I said earlier, you know, I, I just always had a knack for calling and, and really replicating the sound really well for some reason. I don't know why I guess lucky, luck of the draw, I guess. And But I, I was pretty passionate about it, really practiced a lot. But I started, like, calling an elk calling contest back in 1990, I think, was my first world competition. I think it was, if I remember right, it was in uh, New Mexico in Albuquerque. And back then they didn't have, they didn't have separate divisions and all the stuff. They just threw everybody into one group. And I think there was probably about, I don't know, 30 callers at that time. And I think I finished in the top 10, my first calling contest, you know, on the big stage and, and just got hooked. And then, you know, I started uh, having some kids there and then I uh, started bringing them up through the Elk Foundation's calling contests. And yep. we were doing local contests with the, the Colorado Bowhunters Association. And then we were just looking for any contest we could find, you know, Wyoming, Utah, wherever they were. We started traveling, Reno, Vegas, just started traveling to all of them. And then my kids started working their way through different divisions and started winning elk calling contests. And, and we just got so ingrained in it and so we had so much family fun in these contests and we were winning great prizes and money and you know cash and guns and bows and it was just fueling our passion for elk hunting too and it just became an obsession almost with us you know so and this is the um, 90s and so this is pre-instagram this is before you can tell the world and show you're not doing this to just show off in front of a lot of people i mean you were doing this because your family was absolutely passionate about it and you guys just found this niche that you loved yeah and uh fell into it so i mean you guys have been you've been at the calling thing you've been going at that for 30 years yeah yeah and it's still fun and it's changed a lot in the last 30 years. You know, now this head to head competition makes it a lot easier for the judges to judge the contest. Cause they don't have to say, well, you know, what did that first guy sound like? And what did the 40th guy sound like, you know, and which one was better now it's like the March madness, you know, you get up on stage with one collar and all you got to do is beat that collar to go on to the next bracket. And, you know, and, and I think it's really helped the whole um, contest just, you know, making it more fair and, and getting in there. And, and, and we're a pretty close knit family, you know, like Corey Jacobson and, and all of the callers that I've been calling against all these years, we all get along great. And, and, and it's, it's really a great family uh, event. So let's talk about getting into calling. Cause you started, you had somebody at your disposal, a living legend, Wayne Carlton, that kind of helped give you some tips and pointers. I, I think, it took me, I, I knew people use diaphragms and I could watch a video. I think just like what we said in the beginning, the first time I picked up a diaphragm, I put it in my mouth the, the opposite way, thinking right. that the C was kind of lining up with the front of my teeth, all of those things. It isn't something that you can just pick up and walk out the door and go to the woods with. Like there, it does take practice. Yeah. And one of the things that I know you've done, I mean, you, you've been on stages, you've been on contests, you've taught your kids, but you've been an instructor now for how long? You know, I've been instructing people since about 2013, 
you know, professionally, like getting people into my classes and, and doing things like that. I've taught a lot of people before that, you know, and I've, and I've taught all my kids and, and all of that kind of stuff. But um, so it, but really it's been about 10 years probably that I've been doing one-on-one uh, -on -one instruction. And then uh, this past year or so with COVID and everything, I got into some Zoom virtual calling classes, which is kind of open things up a little more. I can actually work with people throughout the country one-on-one. -on -one. And, um, you know, there are some challenges with the Zoom uh, lessons, but for the most part, you know, it, it works fairly well. And I, and, and I can give you that really good feedback. Hey, you know, you need more pressure on the read. It sounds like there's air escaping. You don't have a very good seal. Let's try a smaller call. You know, I, I can really, really work with people. And that feedback is what people really need. Yeah. You know, you can go and, and do a lot of virtual classes where you get no feedback and you can hear and, and they're good because they give you a lot of uh, recommendations and, and a lot of, you know, tricks of the trade, if you will. But getting that feedback is is really important, you know, because I can a lot of times really figure out what the problem is, you know. So the value to that part of what you do is it's not just a big group class. It's not just like you're going to teach the same thing to everybody. You're going to listen to somebody's call, give them specific feedback because you've coached people now long enough to understand maybe some of the specifics and the dynamics that are actually happening. Right. When you teach and instruct do you start people on a diaphragm or do you start people on an open read most of it is concentrated on the diaphragm call the diaphragm call is going to be the most realistic call that you can get i don't usually push people right to the open read until you know they just really like if somebody has a gag reflex or they really can't have that call in their mouth for some reason you know not everybody can can learn it i mean there's just some people that their mouth, their palate might be too small. They might have dentures, might be a reason why they can't use the diaphragm read. Um, allergic to latex, I've heard that one. You know, there, So there are reasons out there that people can't. Then I'll start uh, going, You know, maybe showing them our floozy call, which is a, an open read call like this. Now, I will teach people to use this read a lot of times with the class uh, and just show them what the read can sound like and you can put that diaphragm read in your mouth and operate both calls to sound like multiple elk. It's, sure. a, it's definitely a useful tool. Um, but the diaphragm read, you know, that's the, that's the main thing that I really teach and coach. Yeah. So people listening today, they can't see what you're holding in their hand. Cause you've got, you just showed like an open read floozy call and, and then you're holding one of, I, I just saw one of your new kind of Patriot calls that you were holding as a diaphragm. Yeah. So if people want to see these calls, cause they, they don't even know, maybe they've never heard of, what do you mean by the floozy call? Where can they oh, go yeah. just to like view the calls that, that you have? Yep, it's just www mile high note game calls, or you can also put in uh, mile high elk call. That'll take you to the website as well. And then uh, we are in some retail outlets, Jack stores and Shield stores. Shields is one of our great partners. Um, and then we're in a lot of archery shops and stuff up up and down the Front Range of Colorado. And um, we're in uh, Rocky Mountain Discount Sporting Goods in Casper, Wyoming as well. That's another good customer of ours. So now, when you're starting with somebody on an with a diaphragm call, do you 
do you kind of get started with just like let's just make a sound that's it, it might yeah. not even be focused on an elk sound like it's just like let, let's just figure out how to get a sound out of the reed do you start there and then do you work your way to a cow call then to a bugle or do you just say no let's what would you sure. say kind of some of the first steps are so fit is really important with the diaphragm calling there are different size diaphragms out there so you know, we have a slimline call and a, and a regular size call. So normally I always start people out with the regular size call. That's kind of our bread and butter call. And then um, if I see that there's a fit issue, like they're really struggling getting the call to stay in the roof of their mouth or, um, you know, they aren't making the real crisp, clean, high note sound that we need. Really, it's about the high note, too. You know, that, that's what that's what everything is about without calling is that high note. But then we'll switch up and, and give them a, a slimline call and get that up there. And a lot of times that fixes the issue, you know, and gets it fitting right. But yeah, when we always start out with just making a beginning sound. So like we put this call, I always tell them, put it in the roof of your mouth, right up against your front teeth. Um, that's kind of where we're going to start the read. And then if they're struggling making a sound, you know, keep the tip of your tongue down by the bottom of your teeth. You're raising up trying to hit that latex on the middle of your tongue. And if we're still not getting a lot of good sound, then I'm going to start inching the call back a little bit, making some adjustments with it. I also tell people to start taking the tip of your tongue and put it down on your gum instead of your teeth. That'll allow your tongue to turn a little bit differently and hit that latex a little bit differently. Just getting that beginning sound. And, you know, the beginning sound is just something like a, <laughs> almost sounds like a sound. sesame street like horn or something that you're yeah doing. i mean that's all we're looking for is just a noise you know and once we kind of get that noise then i'll usually back off and i'll tell people okay well let's start out now we're going to take a big deeper breath and then we're going to use light pressure like we just did with your tongue and we're going to consistently increase pressure on the reed and increase air going up to try to get a scale and these are some of the kind of the beginning uh procedures that we do with calling so it's like just yeah. kind of trying to get some different uh, notes out of that to medium to a high yeah and just yeah try, try to take it to the peak and then once we get kind of working that way then we go after that high note right off the top so then you're adding that pressure that hard pressure on right away and then just dropping off the reed when you hear the high note and that's the beginning cow mew and the and the cow sounds that we begin to make so it's like so you're just kind of making that beginning cow sound then yeah and then we work from there you know and then it's all about the different types of cow sounds that you can make how can you uh sound like multiple cows and you know increasing pressure on the reed gets different high notes or different pitches you know and then adding um your own voice into the calls and 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 that's really where a lot of the polishing comes in once you learn the basic calls you know you you kind of you've got the bugle down you've got the cow call down um you've got some grunting down then i like to take people and polish that up and make it more realistic by adding your air from inside your body your breath your um, different noises that you can make to just bring it more realistic sounding. 
That's the beauty of doing some one-on-one instruction stuff. If somebody wanted to do one-on-one instruction with you, I mean, to get one-on-one instruction with an elk calling champion, somebody that's been doing this for a lot of years, it's way different than last year. I had a couple hunt league people reach out to me. They were coming on their first hunt from Texas. They'd never done anything. They were sending me videos. Uh, We were just texting back and forth where they would take a picture of them. Like, here's my elk sound, send it back. I'm like, oh, you know, we're not, we're not even really close. uh, You know, and we, we would just go back and forth like why don't you try this and i was like and, and even just like helping them understand using the diaphragm why don't you practice like even trying to make a coyote sound or, or making other sounds right. just so they started getting more dynamics in the range you know work on do, do your turkey call you know do do some of yeah. these things so that you just get more control over the diaphragm and then let's work towards the the sound of the eel, you know eel. right yeah you know, and go, yeah. going up. <laughs> so we, we did some of that. But if somebody wants to do one-on-one instruction with somebody like you, where, how do they find you? Do they reach out? What's that process? Yeah. So um, they can go out to my website. I've got some virtual call classes out there. I've got a one-hour class that we offer and then a two-hour class. The one-hour class is just what we just talked about, dealing with, you know, beginning sounds and, and really um, getting all the way through making some cow sounds and bull sounds. And then, um, the two hour class is the same thing for the first hour. And then the second hour I offer a seminar, um, on elk hunting that, that usually runs about an hour. And, you know, I cram about 35 years, 40 years of experience into that seminar, just going over what's worked for me, you know, when to call, when not to call, what types of things have worked for me over the years. Now, I'm not saying my philosophy is any better than anybody else's, but it's worked for me over the years. And I might have different philosophy than a lot of people, but I think as long as you use, it just gives you more tricks in your bag. You know, Corey Jacobson and I might disagree on how we go after a bull elk, but both methods will work. So it's really good to, to get a bunch of education on this. But yeah, you can go out to my website, sign up for those uh, virtual classes. And then if you want a one-on-one class, uh, sign up for the virtual class and and I'll reach out to, I reach out to everybody that that does sign up and, and purchases a, a class. And I offer them a one-on-one in-person class as well. So, you know, if you're out of state, obviously there's a cost to come in for a one-on-one Uh, class with me you got to get to Colorado but you know if you want if you're out of state and you want to do the virtual class we can do that just like you and I are right now only you know over zoom we'd be able to see each other and and really work on it and they they find that on the milehighnotegamecalls.com website yep yep there's an instruction tab on the website and you just go to that tab and and you can purchase the the class right there and then with with the the two hour class is kind of nice because it's 120 dollars but i send you a full elk calling kit so you get the grunt tube two reads the call uh class basically on a on a cd and a call case for you know it's it's probably a 50 dollar value 60 dollar value with shipping right there you get free shipping as well so i mean it's a great deal all right so mile high note game calls you guys make grunt tubes you make diaphragms you make open read you make a bunch of uh, you have your whole lineup how long how long has mile high note game calls been around give us a little bit of history of, of mile high note game calls sure so we started the company um 
officially in 2013. So that's that's the official born date of my high note game calls. Um, but there was a lot of time leading up to 2013 where, you know, the whole reason I really got into this was by accident because basically, you know, like, like we touched on before, my passion was these elk calling contests and hunting, hunting elk. And, you know, there's a lot of good calls out there on the market, but I always felt like I'd pick up one of those calls and I'd really like it. I really get it broken and it'd be perfect for the contest, you know, and then um, it would start to, you know, wear out like a lot of diaphragms do. And I'd be like, okay, I got to go get that call again. So I'd go buy that exact same call again and I put it in my mouth and there'd be like, it would be like, it was a totally different call. And yeah. I'd always be like, man, why can't I get some consistency in these calls? So I thought, you know what, I'm going to figure out how to make my own calls just for these contests. So that's what started this whole thing. So I went out, bought a press, bought a cutter. And then, geez, it took me like, I probably made 2000 calls before I got the recipe down. And the recipe is the thickness of latex and the stretch of that latex. So for me, I wanted a call that I could really develop that I could just pop into my mouth and it would be a call that didn't take much break in. I could bugle cow call with it right away. So it really took a long time for me to develop these recipes on, on a few different calls. You know, I had single read, double read, triple read, and that's the layers of latex on the call, single latex, double latex, or triple latex. And basically I developed these for my elk calling contests. Well, then I started like giving them out to people and they were like, man, I love these calls, you know, can I start buying some? And, you know, so then I, I'd go to contests and we'd win a contest and people would be like, what call are you using? You know? And then I realized, wow, you know, maybe I can turn this into a business. So that's kind of the way that it got started. So then I started looking into packaging and doing all that stuff. And before I knew it, it just grew into this little business and it's, it's been a great little venture for me and uh, fuels more passion for elk hunting. So. Yeah. Now I mentioned this because earlier I'm, you know, we're on zoom, but people can't see you, but you held up a, a Patriot game call and a Patriot game call. It was obvious when you held it up. Cause you know, there's an American flag on it and it, it's, right. it's a really beautiful call. So you just released the, the new Patriot lineup. So tell me a little bit about the Patriot lineup. Yeah. So first of all, I, I just, uh, I thought it would be really cool to do a partnership. So I know Mark Carlton really well, and the, the native by Carlton is, is yep. the call. That's Wayne's there. son. Wayne's son, right? So we've called against each other at contests, you know. And Mark's a really great guy, and you know I, I liked what they were doing with some of their tapes. So uh, I talked to Mark, and, and uh, he he was willing to create some really cool patriotic tape for us you know so i bought the tape from mark and then i just manufacture the calls so so it's kind of a little joint venture with mark and and his dad there and but we really wanted to come out with a patriot type call just because of really what's been happening in in the united states for the last two or three years you know and um i think we need more patriotism and and, and stuff and we wanted to do something as a company too to to help our veterans and stuff so I made a deal with uh, Brian Saladay, who is a uh, co-owner. I think, I think he's co-owner of uh, Rocky Mountain Heroes Foundation in Fort Collins, Colorado. And every year they take uh, veterans out on hunts. And 
um, veterans and their families and uh, the kids and stuff. So it's, it's a really good organization. So we decided that we were going to come out with this Patriot line and we would donate 5% of the sales to his organization to fund these hunts and help promote just getting our vendor, getting our veterans outside outdoors. And, and really it's a, it's a great therapy for them, you know, and, and it's a great organization. And so we've made a little partnership with them and, and that's kind of where we came out with the Patriot calls. So it's pretty cool. We've had a really good response to the Patriot lines at our trade shows and stuff, sold a lot of calls and, and we're going to keep this line going. It's a, it's a great line. Is the Patriot line, is that available in stores as well? Or is that something that is only available on your website? Right now it's only available on our website. I'm hoping to get those out into the shield stores and into Jack stores uh, pretty quick. It could be available. I haven't got my POs for Jack's yet, but I'm hoping Jack's will order some. And um, I think you'll start seeing them show up at some of those stores as well. So mile high note game calls, you guys have been around since 2013. Your primary focus is elk calls. Do you guys make any other type of call? Um, there's some top secret information that I'll share with you that we're coming out with. It looks like we're going to be coming out with some waterfowl calls here this year. Um, hoping to have some ready to go for some trade shows. And I think we're going to come out with a goose call and a duck call. And, uh, my son Thomas and a lot of our guys that, that help us and promote our calls are avid waterfowl hunters. So we're going to come out with a few of those calls this year. Uh, we do um, we do have some turkey calls as well, some turkey diaphragm calls that we cut, and they're they're pretty nice calls. Uh, the goose and duck calls coming out; those are not available yet, but we're hoping to get some of those available for the ISE show in January. We're hoping to have some ready to go with that. Okay, so most likely people will need to look for 2023 for waterfowl calls. Yeah. Yep. And, and we've got some prototypes that are just awesome. So we're going to test those this fall as well over the, over the goose hunting season and stuff, and then come out with them at the beginning of the year. Okay. When we're talking about elk calls, we're talking primarily about hunting in the rut. You told me primarily you have done bow hunting, muzzleloading hunting in the state of Colorado. And when you're doing those two things, you're talking about the month of September, you're in the peak rut. You have a lot of experience and you have killed more elk than most people will ever dream of. So talk to me a little bit about some of your tactics, some of the story. I mean, you don't just get to kill 35 elk by just stumbling in the woods or just hiking a lot. You know, you'll hear a lot of different strategies from a lot of us that that do these types of podcasts and, and that teach, you know, uh, elk hunting and have seminars and stuff and and they're all good strategies. They all work really well. We've all been successful, but this is, you know, for me over the years, when I was 20, 25, you know, I used to run through the woods with my hair on fire, just like everybody else does a lot, a lot of the younger guys, you know, and what, what's happened over the years is as I've gotten older, I've, I've gotten the ability to hunt smarter, not harder kind of thing, you know? So I think it's really important to do your homework up front, really get your scouting down, really know the areas that you're going into on X hunt maps and all that stuff really have increased that uh, ability to, to mark things on your maps and really know where you are in the woods and where the elk are. And, um, you know, so the more time that you can spend and the more 
experience that you get in different areas is really helpful. So like for me, I want to really maximize my time in the woods. I don't want to walk around that much searching for the elk and, you know, throwing out locating bugles and hoping I get a, a response. I want to go into the areas with as much knowledge as I can so I can slip into those areas quietly, get set up, and then call the elk to me. So I'm a big decoy guy. I love using Montana decoys. I use, I've been using them for years and, and they work really well. So I like slipping into an area, getting set up, you know, just at first light, getting that decoy set up behind me, pulling my rangefinder out, hitting some marks in front of me. So I don't have that movement when a bull's coming in. I know that there's some landmarks. Hey, that split um, aspen tree is 25 yards that full pine tree over there is 40 yards. You know, I, I have a little ritual that I do every time I set up and, you know, and then I go through make sure I can pull my bow back and see through my peep sight. I do all this before I make my first call in a setup situation because many times I've called elk in right away and it's too dark to shoot or, you know, I didn't have my arrow on my string, so I wasn't prepared. So I go into every setup like I'm going to call an elk in and shoot it. And, you know, it might be seven of them before I finally do, but I'm going to be ready when I call one in. Because too many times I have been, you know, too nonchalant and had an elk run up to me. And I'm standing there with my bow at my side and like, like he's 30 yards from me staring at me and I'm done. I can't do anything. Yep. You can't move. You're frozen. From my standpoint, and what I like to do is I like to start out cow calling. And, you know, I'll usually have a buddy with me and and we'll start cow calling back and forth, you know, and, and really just work an area for about 20 or 30 minutes up front cow calling. And the reason I do that is a lot of times what I've noticed, especially in over-the-counter units and in areas that, you know, don't house a lot of giant bulls. If there's a bull that's a hundred yards away with seven cows and I don't know he's there and I throw out a locating a bugle, a lot of times the bull is just going to take the cows and, and move off. Yep. You just watch him walk over the next ridge. Right. He's already got seven cows. So, but if all of a sudden he hears two or three cows calling up on the ridge, you know, a lot of times he'll push the cows up towards you. He'll be more apt to bugle back at you. And when he doesn't hear another bull bugling, I think they come in quicker a lot of times. You know, they'll come in, especially satellites and things like that. You know, all of a sudden, you know, you start answering with what I like to call a barrage of cow calls or a cow call party. You know, boy, a bull goes off and bugles and all of a sudden he hears five, six cows going off excitedly with a lot of excitement. A lot of times what I, in my experience, that really brings them in a lot quicker. It's just like, wow, they don't have another bull that they got to worry about. They're going to get in there quick. And that's one of the, probably one of the most successful things that I've learned over the years. Before you start calling, you have a whole setup and a ritual that you kind of do. Is that just a ritual that you've developed over the last 35, 40 years? Or is that something that you've become more intentional about in the last three to five years going, okay, now I've got an actual checklist. And if you do have an actual checklist, like what's on that checklist? Give me a little bit of your rundown. And it, it has been developed over the last 30 years or so. I mean, you don't know how many times early on when I was younger, you know, I would, I, I love calling in the woods and yeah, I can't wait to get the call in, in my mouth and start calling, you know, and 
and sometimes I'd get overzealous and call in the dark as I just hiked in four and a half miles to get to the spot that I really wanted to set up in. And I called, I threw one bugle out just to hear, cause I couldn't stand it anymore. I just wanted to see if I could get a bull to answer <laughs> me. Something the next me. thing I know here, they come, man, they're running down the hill at me and I'm standing in the dark with, you know, a, a herd of six elk. I'm right in the middle of them. And then they smell me and they blast out of there. And then I'm thinking, well, that was really dumb. I just hiked four and a half miles and ruined the area that I was going to set up in. So, <laughs> you know, it doesn't take too long before you start realizing, wow, I got to really figure this out and, and be ready, you know, or, or I'm up on a rock and, a, you know, I'm in the, by a meadow and I do a huge elk bugle, uh, a huge locating bugle. And next thing I know, there's three elk running through the middle of the meadow at me. And I'm standing on this rock right out in the open with my bow up my side no arrow knocked, you know, and then they're like, looking at me like, wow, you're not an elk. You know? So, <laughs> wow, I'm out of here. <laughs> these are the types of things that really cause this ritual to, to develop. So, you know, really I, I love uh, setting up, getting that decoy out, putting it behind me, setting up, uh, looking at the, the, with the range finder, the distances, just getting a couple landmarks in front of me. So when that bull's coming in, I don't need to pull the range finder out. I already did it. And then, you know, looking through my peep, make sure I can really see my pins good. Or if it's a open site muzzle loader, which Colorado is, you know, making sure that I can see the sights well enough, putting a cap in the gun, putting an arrow on the string. These are all things I do before I make that first call. So you set up your decoys before you start calling. Yeah. If let's, let's say you set your decoy up. And then you start making a call and you realize the elk is maybe in a different direction. Do you stay put? Some of what you're asking goes back to scouting and, and the experience in certain areas, you know, and um, a lot of what I do. And it's so funny because back in the day when I was first learning, you know, and I go to seminars like with people like Wayne Carlton and, 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 Back then, they preached, oh, you know, elk will go downhill way more times than they'll come uphill. So always position yourself to where you're below the elk so because they'll come downhill easier. My experience over the last 40 years is the opposite. I like to stay above the elk and call them out of places. So I'll position myself a lot of times where two ridges come together into like a funnel area down below me where there's dark timber and really good elk country down there. And I might come up about 400 yards, 300 yards above that, put my decoy behind me and call downhill at those areas, you know, where, where two mountains come together, where there's maybe a Creek bottom or something down in there that really, I know from experience how's elk. So I'm going into this with a pretty good idea of which direction the elk are coming from. Does it always work out that way? No. So if for some reason I had set up like this and boom, a, a bull bugle from the opposite side, number one, the wind's probably going to be wrong at that point. So I'm going to want to get reset up. Sure. So I'm probably going to get the decoy. I'm probably not going to put the decoy away. I'm just going to grab something really quick, try to reposition myself, work the wind into my favor, and then reset up and try to call that bull back in because the wind is the most important thing. The wind is wrong. You're not going to, you're not going to kill an elk if the wind is wrong. Okay. I, I like this idea of, you know, going through a ritual. And I would say 
when you're checking your peep, are you actually drawing your bow and checking your peep through your pins and stuff? Or, or are you just kind of, yeah. cause I, I think that's important too. I think, uh, I've had times where even walking in, sometimes you'll have caught, uh, you know, grass or different things that are, that are stuck in your bow. And I think just, I've run into that a couple of times where I don't think I've put some of those things that you just mentioned into practice. And I think that would actually be helpful for me. But knowing the area is the most important thing for, for cold calling, I think, because you can get in, get set up and you have a high confidence that there's elk down there. I mean, I know areas that I've hunted for a lot of years that you know i've killed six bulls in in this meadow i've killed seven bulls in this bowl so there are areas where they've had high success rates and i've really learned where these areas are by hunting the same area you know and that's really been been a good success thing for me you know, I found an area that was really good and I stuck with it and really learned it. Sure. And you know, funny thing is now I, I hardly ever hunt that area. So I'm hunting a different area, <laughs> but you know, and, and the less, you know, an area, the more locating you're going to have to do. I mean, you know, and that's just the way it is. I mean, yeah. And you know, one of the things that I've had a lot of questions recently like different hunt league users are asking me you know what do you think should i come in towards the beginning of the season the end of the season middle of the season am i am i looking at the moon phase when you look at or or look at the month of september does any of that stuff factor into the way that you decide like well when would i go hunt or do you factor in how you may do a call setup Do, do you change from the beginning of the season to the end of the season yeah uh you know, moon phase, I think is really important. I've had some really bad hunts that have had full moon weeks, like in September where man, it's just brutally hot. The moon is full out at night and it's tough. I mean, those conditions are probably some of the hardest conditions. So I do try to avoid full moon weeks in September. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, as far as hunting at the beginning and end of seasons. I don't really change my strategy as, as that much, but the elk act differently during that time. So like that first week of the season is later now in Colorado, which is kind of nice. But God, I remember when it was mid August, you know, when we'd start and a lot of times earlier in the season, the elk will come in less vocally, but they still come to the call. Like I, I've been up on a ridge and bugled and cow called and, you know, got a bunch of excitement in my calls throughout a locating bugle and a whole bunch of cow call partying going on up there. And I've had three bulls running because they're, it was early in the season. And I think it just generates curiosity from the bulls. They're like, wow, it sounds like the ruts in full swing up there. Let's get up there and see what's going on. Next thing I know, I got three bulls running at me. You know, so they never once bugled back. They just came in hard, you know, Hmm. and because they wanted to see what was happening. So the last week of September, the bulls wouldn't be together. But if there's they're going to be more vocal, so they're going to come in screaming. They're going to come in raking trees. They're going to you know, they're going to be more fired up. So I usually prefer hunting that last week of the season myself. 
Okay. But, you know, in a perfect world, I'd like to hunt the whole month. The whole month of September. (laughs) (laughs) Every year. And I just wish September was all year long. Every year. (laughs) (laughs) No, I get it. Um, Okay. You, You mentioned this too, like that when you were in your 20s, you know, you were running around with your hair on fire, kind of just every ridge, every mountain, everything like that. How old are you, Tom? So I turned 58 this year. Yeah. So trying not to let the old man in, but boy, he's got a sledgehammer and he's pounding at the door. right now. So give me, give me some idea because I'm kind of in that I'm in the middle of my elk hunting career. I, I would at least hope to be, you know, I, I got started about 15 years ago. Um, so in my twenties, late twenties is when I kind of started chasing elk. And I would say in a very similar fashion, I mean, I was covering ground like crazy. I would go out on a weekend, you know, and I'd come back having done 60, 70 miles over a two or three day period. Um, I don't hunt the same way that I did then. I'm trying, I'm much more intentional right now about fitness. I, I keep track of how many days I'm going to the gym and I have targets that I want to make sure I, before I go into a season. But what I'm really getting at is from your twenties to your fifties, what has really changed in the way that you hunt elk as you've aged? My intentions are to, you know, work a little bit harder preparing for the season and stuff, but there's a lot of juggling that has to be done and time that takes to do it, you know? So you really got to set time aside and, you know, get on the bike, get on hiking. And, but, but, you know, strategy wise, yes, I have changed some strategies and, and I go back to knowing your area again, you know, I I really want to know these areas. So I'm not having to hike 50 miles, you know, in a week. And, you know, I'm, you know, I'm still getting off the road quite a ways, but I'm spending a little more time in each setup now. So my theory has become in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so is the elk are moving around more probably than even I used to move around. I mean, they're moving and, and walking and going different places, being pushed by other hunters. And um, so a lot of times what I do is I get into these proven areas or the areas that I've really scouted and I'll set up. And a lot of times I'll sit in those areas for up to an hour, maybe even a little bit longer, just, you know, going through my routine with cow calling and, you know, then jumping into some locating bugles that carry a little farther and I'll work these areas. And there's times where I've worked an area in an hour and a half, didn't hear a sound. And then an hour and a half later, I get an answer to a bugle. So those elk are coming in They're They're moving around. And finally they got wind of, of my calling. And then I bring them into me. It, it just, I, I enjoy that a little more than really taxing my body. You know, I've had knee replacement now and I'm having some inflammation issues and stuff. So as I get older and start having more and more issues, it is tougher for sure. But I think the strategies that I've developed in the last 10 years have really helped, you know, get into these areas, hunt a little smarter, not harder. There was years where I ran around, like, like we said, with my hair on fire calling and, you know, just physically taxing my body to the maximum level. And did I see elk? Yeah, I saw a lot of elk, but I also scared a lot of elk. I also pushed a lot of elk out of areas. 
you know, I was calling and walking at the same time and, you know, covering my, my noise of my feet hitting limbs and with cow calls. And then again, man, here comes some thunder. The elk are running at me because they heard me calling and I'm crashing through the woods like an elk. And all of a sudden I got them all standing in front of me and my bow's at my side and I'm not ready again. And then boom, like, you know, so now I'm really focused on being ready to shoot an elk. I mean, if those elk come in, I'm not going to blow the chance because I'm ready. You know, I'm not hiking from point A to point B calling while I'm walking. I'm set up and ready. Now, don't get me wrong. If I don't, a lot of times, if I don't hear another elk in an hour to, you know, an hour and 20 minutes, then I'm pulling up stakes and moving on. Maybe I'm only going another half a mile or so, or, or, or maybe a mile. And then I'm going to set up and start my whole routine over again. Sure. So I'm not just hiking to hike all day long now. Yeah. I'm really- You're counting on guys like me walking through the woods calling as I walk, pushing those elk out of the areas that they were and coming right to you. So you're, you're capitalizing on us young guys that are still pushing (laughs) elk around, keeping them on their feet, moving all day. And it's like, great, I'm just going to be here when they come through. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And and it's still working. I mean, I'm still killing elk pretty much. It's not every year, you know, pretty close to it. So this past year, you had two significant things happen. One, after 20 plus years, you drew a bighorn sheep tag. Two, you had a massive injury with your shoulder. You said you tore your rotator cuff. Here you have a dream hunt. And at the same time, you're having your body fail in a way that's going to prevent you from being able to do the dream hunt the way that you envision. So tell me a little bit about your 2021 kind of season and drawing a bighorn sheep tag after 20 plus years. How did you adapt? What was the process? Just tell us that story. I want to hear all of it. Sure. So the highs and lows last year was an incredible year. Um, First off, it really started in 2020 because my son drew a moose tag in 2020. So we were like, wow, this is awesome. You know, so we scouted all summer in 2020 and then fires broke out and one thing led to another. And my son had to turn his moose tag back in a week before the season. So that was just devastating, total defeating. And, oh man, we were so bummed out. And so then, uh, you know, we did our elk hunt and everything went okay and uh, killed some elk. And then we got into 2021 and um, my son was guaranteed to get his moose tag back. So in 2021, in the unit that I put in for, there was only one um, sheep tag available because there was a, there usually is two, but somebody also turned their tag back in, in the sheep unit and was able to get it back the next year. So I thought, man, should I put in for that unit? I don't know. One tag's not very much, but I thought I'm doing it, you know? So I put in for that and didn't expect much and sitting at my desk, you know, at work one day and I get an email from the division this is how out of touch i was kind of in that spring because normally i'm looking in the back door trying to figure out man did i get you know did they charge my card what happened you know and all of a sudden i get this email and i'm like oh man this this has got to be about my sheep tag you know so i open up the email and it says successful and i can't tell you i think i i think i had tears in my eyes i think i actually almost just just at that point thinking to myself oh my god 27 years i finally drew my dream sheep tag you know yeah so you know i'm on the phone with everybody you know i drew the tag you know all excited so man i head over to my favorite archery shop buy a brand new hoyt rx5 you know and 
um i shoot it a little bit at the bow shop and everything and get brand new arrows you know i'm all getting all stoked up and it's turkey season so i'm like all right let's go turkey hunting so i took my four-year-old grandson out and we're hunting turkeys up in the front range of colorado here and hunting some pretty steep country and we're trying to circle around the turkeys are gobbling up in this one area and trying to sneak around and cut them off and i don't know i just i stepped on this rock and it had water on it and feet went out from under me man i don't think i've ever fell as hard as i fell just face first you know hands oh. went out to break my fall and dislocated a finger on my right hand and i could just tell right away that something was wrong you know my whole right arm i couldn't feel it it was just numb it was just kind of dangling there and i like rolled over and i looked at my hand and my fingers going the wrong direction you know it's like <laughs> I'm trying not to overreact because I got my grandson with me, you know, <laughs> so I pull my finger straight, you know, I'm like, it's not supposed to look like that, you know, and, and then I roll back over and I, God, I almost felt like throwing up and the pain was unbelievable and I couldn't even move my arm. And then of course, the only thing I could think about was the sheep, you know, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. So of course with insurance companies and everything they wanted me to do some therapy so i tried that nothing was working so finally they sent me to have the mri and turns out i got a complete rotator cuff tear tore my scapula as well so you know the only thing i can do is have surgery and so now i'm at the low of all lows so i went from the high of all highs to the oh low of all lows. um thoughts are like do i turn my tag back in you know it took me 27 years to get it don't want to do that. I'm going to have to figure out something else. So I looked into the uh, ADA permit for this is an archery only hunt. What is what is ADA? Uh, the, like a, getting a handicap, you know, type license so you can use a crossbow in an archery unit. Um, so that really was it was down to that being my only choice if I wanted to keep the tag and hunt. Yeah, because you knew you couldn't draw a bow. I mean, you're right. You're... right. It just uh, there. There was a lot of time because my my hunt was in December, but you know, after my surgery, the doctor tells me, "Well, you've got um, your rehab is going to be rough because it's going to be six or eight weeks in the sling, and you can't move your arm, and then you've got ten percent a month that you're gonna you're gonna start healing." So, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a year process basically. Yeah. So in December, I would have been about 30 to 35, 40% healed. Wow. And, you know, I didn't, I, the worst nightmare in of all nightmares would be to wound a sheep. So I'm like, I, I got to do what I can, you know, to, to make this happen. So I looked into the ADA permit with the division, talked to my doctor, they wrote a, prescription i guess or an application for me and then i was able to get the tag and you know i used to i was such a hardcore bow hunter for so many years i used to think man re, there's no room for um crossbows in the archery season blah 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 and i was always against all of that and now i find myself you know, doing it. So I'm like a hypocrite, I guess, in many ways. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm not getting rid of this Jeep tag. And, but as I started that process, I started realizing, you know, this isn't going to be a walk in the park. First of all, it sucks carrying around this crossbow. I mean, it's not nowhere as nowhere as easy as carrying around my compound bow. It's sure. awkward. You know, it, it was just like, man, 
and then there's there's definitely some restrictions you know they don't let you put a the scope that comes with the crossbow you got to remove that so the the only thing i could do is put a little red dot scope on there that's a one power so wh- why did they are you saying that because it had magnification you can't have any magnification on a crossbow right right there was a lot of restrictions that went along with this so i thought well okay well it'll still shoot pretty flat i'm sure you know so i started sighting in and doing some things and i realized wow you know it you know, if I sight this thing in at 50 yards, at 20 yards, it's shooting six, seven inches high. So I'm going to have to hold low. And then at 60, 70 yards, it was shooting low. So I would have to hold high. You know, it's not like I got five or six sight pins. So it, it, it was pretty challenging, honestly. And I was like, this is a lot harder than I was expecting it to be, you know, so <laughs> so you thought the crossbow was always just like a rifle and you're just cheating using right. a crossbow and then you start using it and going, wait a second, this is, this is no joke. It was eye opening. Honestly, it was fun shooting it. I enjoyed shooting it. And, you know, I had to, of course I had to go spend a bunch of more money cause I had to buy a new one, a new crossbow. And I just bought the, the new Hoyt, Hoyt you know? <laughs> so I'm like, my wife's looking at me like, this is a lot of money you're spending, you know, once in a lifetime, honey, once in a lifetime. <laughs> So I finally settled in on the 50 yards. So I thought, well, I'm going to dial it in at 50 and hope for the best, you know, so, and, uh, opening, well, then, then, you know, it was spent for two or three months. We spent, uh, again, scouting moose because Thomas still had the moose tag, you know, so, uh, we got our eye on some good moose and I don't want this to be too long, but Thomas ended up killing a, a really nice moose. And that was one of the most exciting things I ever did you know, finally got behind a giant moose and got to be right by his side when he did it all. And that was so exciting. And then, and then we shifted gears and we started scouting for the sheep. And, you know, we, I found pretty much the two biggest sheep in the Canyon that I had my eyes on and um, opening morning found us out in front of the herd of sheep. Both of, uh, both of the target Rams were in the herd and I got within about what I thought was probably close to about that 50 yard mark in front of the sheep. If they came, if they kept coming on the uh, path they were taking, you know, so we kind of set up out in front of them and uh, man, the first Ram came out and, you know, I had him at 53 yards, I think it was. And just as I was ready to shoot, Oh, you walked right in front of them. So, then he saw me and they both took off up over the hill and i was like oh so then the rest of the sheep started coming out kind of together and pretty soon the one that i called crooked horn which was a big guy with heavy bases he stepped out and and cleared the ewes and gave me a shot and i shot but at the angle we were at it was straight up and my arrow went in at a good spot but it caught the it caught the bottom of his uh um his spine and it just dropped him and i was like oh my god you know and then he started rolling at us and he's like rolling down the hill right at us you know and <laughs> i'm scrambling trying to get another arrow in the crossbow it was like i forgot everything on how to load the damn crossbow and i'm like struggling <laughs> and trying to get going and he's coming at me and thing you know it was just so exciting and then he finally rolled all the way basically to our feet just about and he expired right there you know and it was just 27 years of emotions hit me and man it was just like i couldn't even speak 
I mean, my son's trying to like do a little interview with me and I'm like a mass fan. <laughs> it was like the biggest dream that had ever come true for me. It was, I was so blessed to get that sheep and get that tag and just awesome. Experience. That's incredible. So you, you and your son, you had a moose and a bighorn sheep tag in the same year. Yeah. Both of those are such time intensive, like scouted because they are kind of your once in a lifetime type hunts. Did you have to just put everything else on the back burner? Did you just did you abandon deer and elk last year in order just to focus on moose and sheep, or did you still end up spending some time in the elk woods? Or I mean, you you didn't even have a shoulder where you could shoot last year, so right, yeah. So we pretty much ended up doing that, and we actually were still planning on doing that last week, maybe last five days of elk season. But one of the guys that was with us on the moose hunt had a goat tag. So he had drawn a goat tag and my son kind of felt obligated to help him on his goat hunt. So, and that was like a week before we were going to go up on our elk hunt and they were up in a real high unit for those goats. And, uh, our buddy killed the goat and they were packing it out. And some of the shale gave way under my son's feet and he ended up doing a head over heels with a full pack of goat meat on his back ended up falling about 25 feet down the mountain and dislocated his shoulder. Oh my goodness. It stayed out. So they had to call search and rescue to get him off the mountain. The whole thing was just a big old deal. What a up and down roller coaster of expectations, injuries, the reality of mountain hunting, but also still being able to, for both of you to fulfill kind of a lifelong aspiration or dream for him to get his, you know, a, a great moose. And then for you to get, I mean, a 180 plus Ram, that's just, that's just phenomenal. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I have buddies going, man, I wish you could have done it with the bow and, and deep down in a perfect world. Yeah. I wish I would have got it with a bow, but to, you know, I could probably say that I'm probably one of the only hunters in the history of Colorado that are shot a big orange sheep with a crossbow. So that's kind of cool. <laughs> you, you are the only person I've ever heard of that has done that. Cause if you have a rifle tag for one, you're definitely not using a crossbow. And if right. you have a bow tag, like in Colorado, they don't consider a crossbow, you know, an, an archery right. kill. So the crossbows kind of fall in no man's land in our, in our part of the world. Yeah, I went back about seven years of history, all the history I could find out there on the division site, and the only crossbow that it killed that I see is mine out there. So uh, that's that's kind of a cool a cool little thing that I thought was worth mentioning. But but yeah, my son's uh, bull moose ended up making the Boone and Crockett book as well. So we just had a blessed year after wow. it was all said and done. But but with his injury in that fall, we decided you know what, let's just skip the elk this year and, and focus on the sheep. And so we've spent a lot of time up in the Canyon. We ended up spending about 60 days in the woods scouting his moose. Yeah. So, and it, it, you know, it was, it was quite an adventure in 2021. So. Wow, man, Tom, what a wealth of knowledge, resource experience you have. I can't thank you enough for jumping on and, uh, you know, just sharing some of your story, talking about mile high note game calls, uh, the teaching instructions, um, you know, just tactics. I, I think it's been really helpful. I'm, I'm really glad and grateful for the opportunity to be able to sit down with you. 
Uh, I'm also incredibly thankful for Mile High Note Game Calls being a part of our Western Hunting League. Um, you were one of the key sponsors last year uh, in it, and you're a part of it this year. I know we just got things started in technically the Western Hunter kicked off June 1st. Here we are. It's June 5th. That will wrap up next year at the end of May. And we're going to have you on as one of our judges for this. So if people start bribing you ahead of time uh, to take home the prize, you know, you got to turn that, turn that money down and be a good judge for us. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's going to be exciting. I can't wait to to get involved in that and be a part of it. It's it's really going to be fun. Yeah, well, I, I'm so appreciative. Um, so give us just one last little closing bit, and then we'll wrap this up. But, uh, you know, how do people contact you? Um, how, how can they find you? You know, you, you had mentioned something on Instagram. I know we've already said the Mile High Note Game Calls, like, website. But what are ways that people can get a hold of you and uh, stay in touch? Yeah, uh, you know, you can shoot us, uh, you can get a hold of us through the website, and that's at milehighnotegamecalls.com or milehighoutcall. Both of those will take you to our website. You can message us uh, from the website. You can message me through Messenger um, on Facebook, you know, Mile High Note Game Calls. Also on Instagram, Mile High Note Game Calls. You can message me through that. Um, my phone number is right on our website and uh you know, my, my phone number is uh, 303-961-1991. You can call me direct. If you're interested in doing some elk calling classes, you can give me a call and we can get you on the schedule. Um, you know, we do a lot of group classes too. If you want to bring a buddy, you get a little discount on the price for, for bringing uh, plus one. We've got a group coming in tomorrow on Monday. There's six of them and my son's going to help me with the class and uh, we're going to work with these guys and we're just going to have a good time. You know, we're going to do an hour of just calling, polishing people up, working on their, uh, <clears throat> making their calls more realistic and, and then doing the hour seminar and probably even drink a couple of beers. So we have a pretty <laughs> good time, uh, with these classes. So I love it. Uh, and you know, one thing that I saw last year, Michael Batiste, uh, with Elk Calling Academy, he's been a part of, uh, he's been a part of the Huntley community, but he did a competition last year because there's, you know, every year there's new bugle tubes and new things uh, that come out. Well, one of the things I just wanted to highlight because it caught my attention, and uh, I'm not just saying mile high note game calls because you guys are, are a part of our Western Hunt League. I bought mile high note game calls. Your bugle tube is the bugle tube that I use, which is kind of how we ended up connecting and getting in touch in the first place. So I, I use mile high note game calls, but last year, Michael Batiste, uh, used your bugle tube and did a blind bugle tube competition where he did calls off camera and had people vote on which call and which bugle tube they thought, um, you know, perform the best. And if people want to go see that video, I mean, go, go look at Elk Calling Academy's YouTube channel and the unanimous winner last year, was the mile high note game call bugle tube. So I'm going to say congratulations for taking that prize. But also, if you're out there listening to our, the podcast and you're looking at uh, going elk hunting, you might see a lot of marketing, a lot of advertising. You might see other brands in the stores. But if you're looking for a high quality elk call, 
Mile High Note Game Calls has you covered, and you guys sell some great kits that come with a single read, double read, triple read, diaphragms, so that people can really get, like, well, which one is going to work best for me? You have a, reg- a full-size bugle tube. And what's your what's your short, what's what's your small one? What What's that one called? It's called the Enhancer, and it's, it's a small grunt tube, a pack tube that we came out with a few years ago, and it's been really popular amongst the guys that really pack in a long ways and stuff. But I love that little tube for cow calling too. It just really projects the cow call. And um, yeah, we ended up taking 65% of the vote in that uh, Michael Batiste's contest there. And Michael's a great guy. I've known him for a really long time, called against him, a lot of contests and stuff. And it's always a great, great challenge, even uh, competing with Michael as well at the, at the calling contest and stuff. But um, he put on that contest and, and we were really proud that our antagonizer grunt tube took first and got 65% of the vote. And Hey, you know, on most of the grunt tubes we were up against, it's like our grunt tubes, half the cost. So, yeah, you know, I always tell people why, why spend more money? You know, it's like, we've got a, we've got a great product and, and, uh, and we put our grunt tube up against anyone's. No. And when when you're saying 65% of the vote too just so people understand there were i think there were six tubes in that competition if i remember right so it would be one thing you know if you just divided by six and that like everybody gets one sixth of the vote but you got 65% of the vote against five of the other top bugle tubes like on the market it's not just like you just went and grabbed any kind of junk i mean these were the top Everything from I, I don't know if I should say any of the companies or whatever, but right. like go watch the video and right. I mean and it had not just the plastic grunt tubes. I mean you had some of the aluminum, you know, that yeah. have the metal on the inside to you know that people are selling right now. He was against all of those bugle tubes and came out with sixty five percent of the vote. So I would just challenge you if you're looking at upgrading if you're looking at getting your first bugle tube kit because maybe maybe you've learned something about elk calls and you're wanting to do more of that take a look at mile high note game calls their stuff is absolutely some of the best stuff on the market uh you've gotten to listen to tom hear his story he's been in these competitions uh competing since the early 90s um so you have a long history and what drove you to do that is you wanted something that produced the highest consistency and I think you've achieved what you've set out to do. And uh, so Mile High Note Game Calls is a phenomenal company. So go check them out. Um, Tom, thank you so much for spending uh, the last hour and a half with me. I, I really do a- appreciate it. And uh, I look forward to having you be a part of the Huntley community. One of the things that people don't, you know, some people are definitely aware of is at this moment we don't have hunt league out and available on android so if you're looking for tom you got to realize he's an android guy so he's not he's not all in yet on the huntley community but good news coming for you tom is that we'll have android out here within the next couple months we'll at least have the first version where people can start logging their hunts um the community features leagues other things that that will probably be finishing out later in the fall and uh, as we head into next year but we should be fully operational and running in 2023 with both android and ios but uh at least those android hunters that have been waiting the last couple of years to kind of get on our platform they should be able to go uh have it in their on their phone before the fall hunts this year so that's that's the good news update yeah Um, All right. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate having you on the Hunt League podcast. Yep. I appreciate you getting me on the show. 
Thank you for joining us on today's podcast. If you plan to hunt in a Western state this year, I would like to invite you to participate in the Western Hunter League inside the Huntley Gap. Join other Western hunters as they share the adventures of their hunts this season. I want to thank Mile High Note Game Calls along with Vortex Optics, Scree Gear, Climate, Worksharp Sharpeners, Western Fly Covers, Infuse Hydration, and more for participating as sponsors in this league. For more details, go to the leagues page in the app. Click the Join tab and look for the Western Hunter. If you're not planning to hunt a Western state, we still have a league for you, whether that's our small game, predator, waterfowl, or outdoorsman of the year league. Thanks again for listening to the Hunt League podcast and best of luck as you head to the field this year.